Welcome to the Directors UK podcast. We're the professional association for UK film and TV directors. No matter the format, no matter the genre, our featured directors share their approach to the craft. We hope you enjoy. Hi, good evening. Um, nice to um, nice to have you all here. Uh, my name's Rowan Woods. I'm a programmer for the BFI London Film Festival, and I'm here to chat to Zach Braff, writer, director, and producer of the film A Good Person. Um, so, Zach, great to see you. Thanks for being with us. Um, do you want to start before we sort of dig into um, some of the technical uh, stuff? Should we, do you want to start by just giving us a bit of background? You know, what what were you looking to to do with this film? What was the what was the impetus? The impetus was, um, gosh, I'd I just I think grief, wanting to explore grief. I'd lost a lot of people in my life. I had a I had a series of events in the last four years where I lost my father, I lost my sister. Um, And then during COVID, during lockdown, um, one of my best friends in the world was um, living in my, I have a little guest house behind my house and he was living there with his wife and daughter and he got COVID and got very sick and then eventually passed away. So I I was just very um, lost in all of that. And, um, you know, I sat down to write during lockdown. I I, I said, I, I have to write something. I can't just sit here and do nothing. So I, I just started to write. And, and what came out of me was not any of that direct story of my life, but a story about standing back up again after loss and um, and sadness and uh, and beginning again. I wanted to write about how we how we humans uh, are, are able uh, to, to stand up again after after horrible uh, tragedy. And of course, you know, a lot of that is is sort of real human emotions that you can, you know, you can mine from your own life, you can take from imagination. But the film also covers um, covers addiction and particularly around Oxycontin, but also alcohol, different forms of addiction. Um, was there particular research you did into that to make sure that there were elements of that that felt really, really authentic? Absolutely. I, I know people who have gone through uh, AA and, and, um, and in, have been in rehab. And so when I began writing, even just the very beginning, I would text someone and uh, one of those people and ask a question, Hey, would, would it be this or this? And, and they would, they would say, Oh, definitely don't do that. It's this. And that was just even when I was just sort of just rough writing scenes. And then when it became to be, when it began to be real, then I would send the draft to people and say, do I have this right? I mean, because obviously if you're going to have addiction and, and recovery be a piece of your film, you can't, you know, you can't fuck it up. You have to nail it. And I, so there were many layers of the process. And then when we got to production, um, we we actually found a woman who not only um, had beaten Oxy, an Oxycontin addiction, but um, had really began to advocate for, for young women in particular who suffering from this. And she not only gave me notes on the script, but came to every, every, every scene we shot where there was any piece of recovery, she was on set that day um, next to me at the monitor. So, and I would say like, is that real? Does that feel right? Even, even like, would that poster be on the wall? You know, everything she was, she was there for. And you wrote the film or the part of Ali with, with, for Florence, with, with Florence in mind. Is that, is that a different writing process, writing for a particular actor to writing characters who you don't quite know who you'll cast yet? 
It's incredible. It's the first time I've ever done it, really. I mean, I always, when I was writing Garden State, I said, you know, in my head, I was like someone like Natalie Portman. I never thought Natalie Portman would say yes in a thousand years. I was a 25-year-old uh, aspiring director. I, I So that was a different case. This time, this time, Florence and I were in a relationship. We were doing lockdown together. I actually, I wrote the film at this very desk. Um, and um, so, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I was just such so in awe, like most of the world of of Florence Pugh's talent and uh, just natural. I mean, she's a savant, and uh, and I and I, I I knew her, I know her very well, and so I wrote, I wrote, f you know, for her. I wrote the whole thing for her. She was another big catalyst. She was a, a muse for me to 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 sort of shape a character around who who she is in my mind and also her strengths because not only is she an incredible actress but she also is a really beautiful uh, singer and songwriter so i added those aspects um uh, of the character um because i knew that florence could could sing and and then i then i because we were you know uh, doing lockdown together i would I, I said to her would you would you consider writing the songs as the character, because that's a really unique thing too that Florence was able to bring to it. She could read the script and go, "Okay, well, if I was Ali, I would. I think I would write this song." And then she wrote the song. Um, so that was really magical and, and unique to to our collaboration. And to what extent are you thinking as a director while you're writing? Do you have a process where you you just try and find your your way into the character and you find the story and you find the structure and you find the emotions and then you sort of put your director's hat on later? Or are you constantly thinking, is this achievable? You know, will these locations work? What about budget? I mean, some of those are producers' questions, of course, but at, at what stage are you switching hats? Well, that's a very good question. I've done this enough to know, like, you know, what's going to be doable in you know, at a certain point, you know, directors listening and writers listening know that, you know, no matter what you think, if you're going to make an indie drama, you know, at least I don't know how it is in the UK, but here you're going to, you know, no matter what you say, no matter, at the end of the day, you're going to have 26 shoot days. It's like, you know, it's kind of become standard. All my films, other I made one studio movie, but the three that I've made that are indies, it's like, no matter what your budget is, no matter where you're shooting, ultimately, by the time you get to day one, you have roughly 26 days. So I, I think I do write knowing um, roughly what's achievable in, in, in the budget I'm, I'm probably going to have. I don't you know, write any big, uh, you know, green screen action sequences. Actually, I did have a couple of fantasy moments that I that I did have to cut. And of course, in this film, we have a giant car accident, which was a huge challenge. Um, but ultimately we, we, I didn't, I didn't show it cause we couldn't afford to show it. And, and I, it's funny. I, I, I came up with a, a, a saying for myself and for others that I, I pass on to fellow directors, which is at a certain point when you're limited with your budget, um, the, the people, the audience's imagination has an infinite budget. <laughs> and, um, and in not being able to afford to really show, I, I would never never have been able to afford anything um, on the scale of what, if I crafted it right, the audience's imagination of that car accident would be. Um, so that's how we, I ended up handling it. It's just not showing it um, um, really at all. So, yeah, I think you do. I do write, um, 
you know, I knew it's a dialogue, a character driven drama. It's going to have, you know, limited locations and, and really be about people and performance. Um, but I, of course, that does cross your mind as you're as you're writing. And at what point are you starting to think about storyboarding and shot lists? I mean, is that is that how you approach approach something? Do you storyboard? Um, I do for uh, for complicated sequences. I don't I don't for your average, um, you know, scene in a room with people talking um, for complicated sequences. The one studio movie I made, uh, which was about, you know, uh, three uh, seniors robbing a bank. There were lots of action sequences and we storyboarded all the complicated action sequences. Um, for this, we storyboarded the car accident because at a certain point we did think we were going to try and shoot it. What I do that's really helpful to me more than anything, uh, and I recommend this to my fellow directors, is I I have keyframes made. Um, I hire a a concept artist, and I'll make just key. Uh, I'll commission some keyframes that are the tone and the vibe of of the moment. So I had one moment from this film, uh, uh, which was Morgan uh, sitting across from Florence at a diner. And it was just the two of them staring at each other, a sort of profile uh, shot of them on either side of the table. And the and the artist knew that it was going to be Florence and Morgan. So she was able to to make it look like them. And it just said so much. And in fact, I have this beautiful um, uh, uh, comp of them together of the actual frame from the movie right right above the the, the piece of uh, concept art and they match perfectly and and i did another moment where in the in the film where morgan is sort of about to take a sip of whiskey and he takes a step back and just stares at the bottle just key moments like that for me they really helped um not only uh, convey to mgm and to um killer films my collaborators but also to the production designer, to my cinematographer, Mauro Fiori, to, to just, they're more helpful to me than boards. They go, this is, the, this is the vibe, this is the tone, this is the feeling I wanna convey. And ultimately they're so good and they're so refined. By the time you get to set, you always end up, I always end up shooting that exact shot because it's, um, um, you know, it's become so important to me. Also, I should say that I made a sizzle reel to try and set the movie up. And I, and I use those uh, keyframes in, in sizzle reels and, you know, pitch reels as well. Yeah, my, ne my, uh, my next question was going to be about conveying the sort of mood and tone to your key HODs. And is that one of the key ways that you do it with the, you know, perhaps with the sizzle reel, perhaps with these keyframes? Or are you also referencing, you know, other films, you know, when you're talking to production designer, when you're talking to Marrow, are you are you yeah. giving them sort of clips and things? Not clips. Well, first of all, the sizzle reel was really powerful. I mean, I had made a we had made like a I forgot how long it was, 10 to 14 minute sizzle reel. Well, not a sizzle reel, sort of the wrong word, a, basically a pitch video. Um to try and uh, set it up and um so that ended up being a really helpful tool because it had music in it, it had it had um the concept art it had interviews with florence and morgan and myself um it had it just really kind of set the tone for what i wanted the thing to be so that was something that actually ended up being helpful but then yeah of course you know like every other director i'm sure you you reference films that are the tone um you play music you um you know mauro and i were just constantly sending back and forth um stills from other films um 
And um, and then you know I've made I've made enough stuff now between the television I've directed and the and the films I've made where I think my collaborators were aware of of the the type of stuff I like the t- the way I like to frame things the way the way I like the tone to be. Um, this was a dark the darkest uh, film I've made, so it was it, it didn't it has humor in it obviously, but it, it certainly was the most. Um, um, the saddest film I've made. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that you, there's a lot of touchstones there that you can, you can reference with, with, with your, uh, HODs. And what was it about Marrow that made you want to work with him on this? I mean, obviously he's incredible, but what was it about him specifically in this particular project that felt like the right, the right match? I, I'm not into sports, but if I collected uh, base instead of collecting baseball cards, I would collect uh, my favorite cinematographer uh, baseball cards. I love cinematography. I'm a photographer myself. I just I love one of my favorite parts of being a director is collaborating with a brilliant cinematographer. And I Lawrence Schur shot um, two of my films. I mean, he's just one of the best on the planet. I think that's pretty um that's not really debatable. And Marrow, I just thought he was brilliant. I loved um, the Antoine Fuqua movies that he had shot. I thought they were gorgeous movies. Um, he had gone on to make these, you know, these huge Marvel uh, scale films. But I, I, I had a hunch that he missed um, going back to his roots because, uh, you know, he couldn't. He, you know, I think the I think he came off one of the Spider Man movies to us. Uh, we had made a short film together. Um, you know, I direct commercials occasionally, and and through the commercial route, I, I, I was signed with Ridley Scott's company, RSA, and we made a, a short film for Adobe. If anyone's curious, uh, Florence actually started it. You can see it; it's on YouTube. It's called uh, "In the Time It Takes to Get There," um, and it stars Florence and Alicia Silverstone. And so it was kind of fun because you know, uh, Marrow agreed to shoot that. It was a three day shoot. We had a large budget. It was a lot of fun, and. Um, and so that was sort of like an audition f- for us to get to know each other. And I, I and, and of course, in Florence as well. And we just loved him so much. And um, I was nervous, of course, that he wouldn't be able to pivot to, to a 26 day schedule coming off these big giant movies. But he did with aplomb. He, he, he's just so brilliant and, and, and was able to, um, to do the pace we needed, which is, you know, when you, when you hire a mega A-lister, you're always worried, okay, they're brilliant, but are they, can they do it at the pace we need? And, um, and he was just wonderful. We did pickup shots. Even after the shoot, we were missing some things. And I, I have a little red Komodo camera and it was literally some of the shots for those that know the movie, the, the stuff of Florence swimming in the, doing laps, that's literally um, Mauro and I, and, uh, and my red Komodo, and um, we went to a local college pool and the lifeguards at the pool were, were helping us shoot. I literally was in a wrap. Marrow came up with this. I was like, how are we going to do this? We don't have a dolly. We don't have lights. We don't have anything. And this is no joke. We got there on the day and there was a little raft like at, at this lap pool. And Marrow goes, Marrow tied a rope to one to both ends. And he, he, he enrolled, he enlisted the lifeguards to be on either side of the lane pulling the rope and I was in the raft with my little red Komodo and as Florence swam a lap the lifeguards were pulling the rope in the other lane as I I, I mean and there's and by the way there's they they open the film they're beautiful shots and that was literally uh everything in that pool it comes back later 
was Amaro and I and a Komodo and Florence and two lifeguards. So that's, I just tell that story because that's how scrappy this mega A-lister DP was able to be on, on our little movie. And, um, and I just think, you know, the film is beautiful. I, I, I can say that I think on, on, in an unbiased way, because it's just, it's his work. It's, it's, you know, it's him and his crew. Um, it was, it was really, he's, he's so talented. Mm, it's really, it's gorgeous to look at. And, Let's talk about when uh, the sequences, I mean, you mentioned earlier having to cut some of these uh, sort of fantasy sequences, but let's talk about when when Ali gets high and the, the 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 look, the sort of the visual language really changes and becomes quite sort of highly subjective. Can you talk yeah. us through those those sort of creative choices? Well, again, you know, I had I had envisioned when I wrote it at some when I when I was writing some fantasy sequences. Um that were that would have been very costly um and we just they, they were the first things to go because i i kind of had pictured um things she was envisioning as she was high we couldn't afford to do any of that so it really came down to um cinematography and editing and i have to give a shout out to dan shock my editor who who really uh brilliantly cut those sequences um we had a lens that that we really liked we uh from panavision i i forgot I forgot what it what it was what exactly what the lens was, but it had really fucked up bouquet and 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 we kind of used it. We called it sort of the we called it sort of the the heroin lens. Um, it had really fucked up edges, and um, it was just really interesting. Every time you put it, I mean, you wouldn't use it for anything other than <laughs> than someone fucked up. I mean, I mean, in my in my mind, it had such a distinct look, and. Um, and Maro just loved it, and I loved it, and so we we used that a bunch when she was high, um, and wide and and really wide lenses too to just actually, and then even a it wasn't a GoPro, but it was some tiny some tiny little 4K camera. We stuck to the to the to the blades of a fan and spun it. Uh, that's a shot that's in the movie that's really cool. Um, so. Um, yeah, that's that's kind of how we that was the visual language from from the lens point of view. And then and then it really came down to Dan Shaw cutting it in a in a way we did some we did some speed ramps to um, um, in 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 I think we shot some things at, at, a, at a high frame rate and then and then kind of speed ramped up and down in post. Um, but that's how we achieved it, you know, because it wasn't you had to do it with, with just the basics because we didn't, we didn't have money to, 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 you know, to, to build the elaborate sets that, that were, you know, in my mind, what I was going to, uh, you know, have these fan, these trippy fantasy sequences. Another one was another one that was interesting was, you know, here's a great example of, we had shot again with the Komodo. We had shot Florence in this, in this far, in this field uh, with these, the, we, we shot in New Jersey in the, in the fall and it was so the leaves just turned. It was just magical. And there was we saw this red tree, red leaf tree. And we just took the Komodo like during some downtime and shot Florence, you know, taking in the trees. It was during the during while she, while she was at rehab. And um and I didn't exactly know where it was gonna go. I, th I thought it might go as a moment where she was at rehab and she was just kind of walking around and saw a beautiful tree. But then Dan said let's take this and use it for one of those moments. So that was another example of, of that wasn't planned to be during a moment when she was high, but Dan 
Dan stole it and goes, this is amazing. Let's put this here. So then she's just kind of tripping out in this, in this red forest. It was really cool. And that was his idea. And you mentioned the, um, the car accident as being, you know, particularly um, sort of challenging uh, sequence to shoot, but was there anything else that, that you found, you know, perhaps unexpectedly sort of challenging once you were, once you were there, particular sequences to sort of to put together? Uh, well, the, the the whole sequence with the the hardest thing to shoot was the was the um, the scene w- with the with the party at night um, where Morgan uh, crashes the party and 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 he's drunk he's drunk and he and he pulls a gun on the kid. That was just really hard, you know. Morgan was eighty four years old at the time. That had to be an all night shoot. Um, we had to shoot because of time and budget. We had to shoot both that party sequence and the confrontation outside where he, where he finally lays into to Florence's character. It was just a big ask on anyone, let alone an 84 year old man. Um, we had a lot of extras for, for, for us. And um, it, uh, just, just, just on top of everything, the loft that we were able to shoot in was like up a giant staircase so the crew having to bring in all the gear and Morgan having to do an all nighter. And that was, and, and, and one of the most challenging acting moments for both characters, uh, that confrontation outside. And it was a Friday night. So there were people partying with Jersey, Jersey city. So that was one of those nights where it was just like, you're like, Oh my God. You know, every director uh, listening or watching this knows those nights where you're like, Oh my God, how are we going to get through this? It's just so it's so it's so double black diamond, you know, like a, like a ski like skiing. It's it was everything was being thrown at us. But um, but then you get it, you get home, and you and you cut it together, and and you see what how brilliant um, Florence and Morgan are in in that confrontation scene. It's one of the most it's one of my favorite scenes in the movie. It's brutal, but it's uh, what I love about Morgan is that he he really, in my mind brought it in a way that he just hasn't in so many years i think he really let me push him you know i think he wasn't always easy um you know he and i i had to i had to push him sometimes he didn't always love that but he but then he but it would it would of course he would raise the bar take after take and you know uh, of course florence in that scene is just utterly shattering and heartbreaking but but morgan's performance in that scene was just um was so thrilling because it was something like I haven't seen him do in a long time. Absolutely. I, I love that sequence. And can you talk us through how you approach getting those performances from those actors? I mean, obviously, they're both incredibly, incredibly talented. But do you do you approach different actors in different in different ways? You think, maybe, you know, perhaps Morgan has different strengths to, do, to Florence and you have to work with them in different ways to sort of bring out those um those performances how how do you approach that absolutely i mean i think that's the that's one of the most important and challenging tasks of being a director is talking to the, every actor has a different way they like to work and a different way that brings out their best um as an actor i certainly know that over the years of of i can tell you the directors that that, that i just clicked with and i loved the way they talked to me and directed me and got better performances out of me and then ones that just didn't work and it was oil and water you know um 
So, and, 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 you know, when you don't have any rehearsal, really, your job is to kind of figure it out. Now, the, now I did have a leg up with my two stars because not only was Florence, my, my partner, but we had made the short film together. So we had been able to, to sort of see how we were like, how we like to work on set. And with Morgan, I had directed him in, in the studio movie I mentioned called Going in Style. So I knew a little bit about, excuse me, I knew a little bit about both of them. Um, but a short film and uh, a cushy studio movie are not a scrappy, super intense drama. Um, so it was hard. Um, Morgan doesn't like to do a lot of takes. Um, and I think for years, because he's so genius, I imagine most directors that work with him are like, great, you're Morgan Freeman. Um, perfect. <laughs> but I, but because this part was so hard and I, I didn't, I didn't want to do him a disservice. I didn't want to do the film a disservice. You know, I had to push him for more takes than he necessarily wanted to do, but he loves me. I love him. We had a really good rapport. And uh, even when it would get tense, sometimes we always hug each other at the end of the day. Um, and Florence is just a dream. I mean, she's, I don't know what else to say other than that she's, she's like a young Meryl Streep. She's, she, she can't, she can do no wrong. Every take only gets more magical. Um, um, I don't know that I gave her too many notes other than saying, you know, occasionally do, do you want to try one this way or that way? But I mean, she's just one of those people where every, it's like Natalie Portman in that every, you could use everything. There's not a, there's very little you can't use when you get to your avid. Mm. And how do you um, how do you find out? How do you figure out how an actor likes to be directed? Are you easy? Do you just sit down and have a conversation with them about it, or is it about intuiting that as you as you work? I think I have a leg up as an as an actor because I've got the ten thousand hours of of going. Here's what the typical actor loves and hates. Um, most actors don't want an acting note after take one, for example. It's like, I'm just, I just am figuring out where, I'm just figuring out what's what. Like, if you want me to, to hit the mark better, or if you, if you say, put the cup down on that line, because it's not going to match continuity, that's fine. But most actors don't want to, don't want a performance note after take one. It's just one tiny example. So there's little things like that, that I just know from being an actor for so many years. Um, and then the other thing that's really important, if they're a stranger to you, Again, these two people weren't, but for for others uh, in other situations, I'll, I'll talk to them in, in in the brief rehearsals that we have, you know, even if it's a day, or on the phone or on the zooms. You know that when you're getting to know the person, saying, "Hey, how do you how do you like to work? Is there any?" I think it's really important to say, like, um, you know, and here's a small example of something that's totally dealer's choice, which is, you know. Do you, if it's your scene and if you're the sort of driving the scene, do you prefer to go first or second in coverage? Actors are really split on that. So that's something you can do that's totally, you know, you, I'll say to them, hey, in, unless it's a huge deal for the lighting or the turnaround or something, do you, do you have a preference as we dive into this coverage if you go first or second? And I'll ask the actor who's really, who's has the harder challenge in the scene, you know, if it's, um, so that's something you can ask in pre-production, like, Hey, just here's some questions, like roughly working. Like, what are you, are there any things that you quirks that you have or really uh, pet peeves that you have? Um, I think that's something really important to hash out in, in, in pre-production before you get to set. 
because for all you know, you might be doing something day one that is like the biggest pet peeve of the actor. Um, you know, I come from 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 comedy, and a lot of uh, we loved on on Scrubs, for example, we loved uh, just riffing different punchlines. This doesn't really apply to a good person, but you know, we would just go through. You know, the person would tee you up, and you'd riff different different punchlines to a joke and then, then the director would call one out and the writer would call one out and the showrunner would call one out and so that was a really fun way to get lots of bang for your buck in terms of options in, in the avid when you're when you're cutting comedy um and even in drama you might if the actor's willing to do it you might say try one like this and you know some actors would hate that don't fucking call out at me from video village like and other actors would be like, ooh, thank you. I love that. Let me try that. Don't cut. Don't cut. So that's kind of stuff you you can really, um, you want to hammer out before you get to set, especially on a fast shoot, because things can go awry real quick if day one you're pissing somebody off because of just a way that you like to work that they don't like to work. Um, yeah. And let's dig in a little bit more into that, the scene we were talking about earlier, this, this kind of confrontation scene. How, when you're shooting very quickly and also you're doing it at night and under challenging conditions, how do you create the sort of the best conditions to allow the actors to give those incredibly emotional performances? Are you are you trying to rehearse that in advance or is it just lots of no. conversations in advance or what are you doing on the day that's allowing them to get to that space or helping them get to that space? Um, well, I don't really... Florence, for example, really doesn't like to rehearse. Um, you know, actors fall diff on different side of this. this. Is another example of things that actors, you know, it's dealer's choice on on how the actor likes to work. Florence happens happens to be someone that doesn't mind reading through it and doesn't mind talking about broad strokes, but doesn't want to doesn't want to work through it. Uh, and I and I tend to I tend to feel like that as an actor myself. Um, uh, we can talk about broad strokes, and we can talk about roughly the blocking or roughly the but I don't want to like go full bore before we get to the set. Cause I just always worry that there'll be magic lost. Uh, that, Cause there's so much magic in that take one where there's surprise. Um, but there's other directors, as we all know, that love to rehearse, rehearse, rehearse a ton. I've never, I never really had the luxury of that. So it's never been an option for me. I'm really never in my whole life, either as an actor or director, other than a play, obviously been in a place where there was lots of rehearsals. Um, um, so really it was, um, you know, just letting them, I mean, I think, you know, there's two of the finest actors working, doing a scene that is really intense. And I, and I, and I don't know, I think you just kind of let, let the two, let them go, not get in the way. Um, ideally I would have done, I think on that particular scene outside, I would have maybe done some cross coverage if I could have, but I don't think we could. That's one thing I like to I like to do if possible is on a scene like that. I think we did that in the bathtub scene in Garden State was was cross cover it um, because when if you can if it's doable with the lighting and this and the and the and the particular set or location if you have a really intense scene you, you can capture um, both sides. Um, I think we did that actually. Um, it's been a minute, but I think we did it in the rehab scene where Florence and Chenaza uh, finally um, talk out um, what's happened to them at the end of the film, towards the end of the film. I think we cross covered that because I just 
I, I also didn't want them to even see each other that day. I think they didn't, they made sure that they were sort of separated and weren't, weren't sort of, you know, shooting the shit at craft service. Um, so that's something that helps. I think if you have a particularly intense moment and it's possible to cross cover it because, you know, the, there were times where Florence was giving everything for Morgan and, and, and just no, there's no camera on her. And you're like, wow, I wish I was getting that, you know? So, um, I don't know. I'm, I'm rambling. I think I've lost track of it. I've lost the plot as you people say. Yeah. <laughs> well, one of my questions was definitely going to be, was there anything you wish you'd done, done differently? So you've answered that. Um, let's talk about, there's, um, Another confrontation scene that's, you know, between uh, Florence and, and Molly, who plays her mother, um, you know, they they sort of have this fight in, in, in the bathroom and it's, you know, it's still very emotional, but it's also it's a lot more technical. And, you know, in terms of sort of, um, you know, where they're putting their bodies and things. Can you talk yeah. us through sort of approaching that scene and you know how technical it was it how many takes you did were you using sort of a stunt coordinator how how was that yeah we had a stunt uh person who helped us because in that particular scene not only were they wrestling but we had to choreograph her slamming her elbow and breaking the glass of the door um you know but you know florence and molly are both of the of the mind that okay obviously we don't want anyone to get hurt and we know we have candy glass for the for the window and and, and we're i'm going to do this we're going to do that but at a certain point in a scene like that you kind of just have to do it um you know what i mean you're the stunt coordinator's there to make sure no one's going to get hurt but two women sort of having a fight over a pill bottle if, if you start trying to fake it it's gonna it's not gonna look real so they really were you know going at it um and then they timed it right. You know, Florence obviously through Marvel has uh, a whole lot of experience with with stunt stuff, so she's really skilled in that area. But um, it, was, it wasn't a big task for her to break a fake piece of glass with her elbow. But um, but um, but and they just went for it. Really, I mean, it was handheld. Uh, it was a real bathroom. One thing we had to do in that bathroom, you know, we had no sets on the whole movie. Um, and we ran into a real conundrum in in the in that bathroom because it's just a tiny normal bathroom in a in a house. And we we finally realized we had to cut a a a, a plug in the wall to do the mirror stuff. So we had to ask the homeowner if we could cut a hole. And then obviously we 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 put it back to we patched it back together. But we had to be able to get that a shot. Obviously, if you had any budget, you'd build a set for. But we the bathroom would have been one of them. But we had to um, be able to get that through the mirror through you know mirror point of view shot for all the stuff of florence in the bathroom um but it was all handheld in that tiny bathroom and uh, and they just went for it and florence loved it i remember i think she said that's one of her favorite scenes she shot just because she loves molly and she loves just really going for it and um and, and i just love that scene they're, they're just both of them being so raw and um yeah it was early on in the shoot too Mm-hmm. I love I love that scene. It's amazing you did it in a real bathroom and not not on set. Like there's not a single kudos set in the, whole, to you. in the whole movie. We just didn't have we didn't have the money. Um let's talk about um uh the edit. How true did you stay to your script once you got to the edit? Did you find there were things that actually you had to significantly shift? It just it just didn't feel right or it wasn't quite coming together in the right sort of way. 
Um, you always have to cut stuff, you know, no matter what, I always, I always have a, I don't know about my fellow directors watching or listening, but my movies are always, when I assemble them, like 245, two and a half. So there's, there's always a lot of stuff that you have to cut. And, um, and that's the real hard part. How do you keep, you know, I knew that I, contractually I had to deliver a movie that was, uh, roughly two hours um to mgm so i knew that um i just i i i didn't really have a choice um so i i i and also i think two hours is the right length for for the film and um so that's just you know shaping it and i and i really just i i owe it all to dan shock he's a wonderful editor i hope he'll cut all my movies um we we actually set up the 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 edit um bay at my house um again to save money um we we cut at my house and um and um yeah i mean obviously a lot of stuff that that you love ends up on on the cutting room floor but um ultimately i think you, you know um it it helps it's for the better for the best for the for the film to not be too long and obviously dan's a fantastic editor but what is it about the way that you two worked together that made you such great collaborators and you know was it about the way you sort of communicated together or his sensibility or what was what was the nature of that relationship I just you know we just clicked you know Myron Kirstein has cut everything else I've ever done and he's a wonderful editor and I, I love it I love an editor when you're on the same page you know you sit next to them a, a ton but I think at a certain point you got to get out of their way and let them shine just like you do every other person you collaborate with. Uh, uh, um, you know, I can only give Marrow so many notes and then it's time for him to light. And then you know, I got to let him shine. No pun intended. Um, so with, with, with Myron, you know, for example, on, on garden state, it was like, here's what I think the ecstasy party scene is. Here's the song. I think it might be, I'm not sure. Um, and then you go away and you got to let them shine their, 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 their craft is editing. Let them do their thing. And I remember seeing the first pass of the ecstasy party scene. I was like, Oh my God, I never imagined it was going to be that good. Um, it was way too long, but it was incredible. And that was, you know, letting someone shine, letting them do getting out of their way. And I think with Dan, we sat together a lot, but then I'd be like, I don't know, let's try, let's, I'm like, I'm get out of your way. Try, you know, for example, the Florence, you know, tripping out um after snorting pills in her bedroom it's like we can talk about it to death but let me go away and let you play let you let me do let me let you do what you're so good at so that's what i like i like an editor who first of all isn't precious you can't be you know there can't be you can't have the eye rolling and the uh, exhaling when i'm like i'm sorry but i don't like it you gotta be you gotta be collaborative you gotta it's you know can't have people can't have their feelings hurt Cause it's Cause you got to try everything, but I also love, um, I love, I love the ability to, to walk away. And, you know, I would, I would go, I would leave Dan alone to work and I'd come back and he'd be like, all right, I tried something a lot of the box. You might hate yeah. it. I don't know. What do you think? And then you're like, Oh my God, that's so cool. One of those was, Oh my God. One of my best Dan shock moments was at the end when Florence is reading the letter from Morgan I hadn't really shot a lot of or thought about cutting away to things. I, I just, I just knew that Florence in that dusty basement would be so powerful. And I, I had only planned to really cut to Morgan typing the letter on the porch, 
but it really wasn't enough stuff to cut away to. It just felt a little long being just on those things. And he's the one who geniusly went, let's go back to the bench at the duck pond. And I happened to have a shot of Chinaza, those, those moments where he kind of steps into focus. Um, when we had shot that for a different moment, I had had him step in in two different ways. One, oh, is when 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 Florent, when Allison has an overdose, I had him step into focus and be looking concerned, like what's happening. Oh, when she's about to consider taking her own life, that's when it happens. And then just on the day, I had had him step in and smile just as an alt. And Dan was like, oh my goodness, why don't we put, why don't we go back to the duck pond with Morgan at the bench and then use the shot of Chinaza smiling um, uh, that was, and I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it. And that was all just, that's a moment where it's like Dan brainstorming and finding things. So, um, I love an editor who, who does that, who goes, I, I think I know what you want, but look what I found. And you know what I mean? That's the best. Mm-mm. Um, just a reminder to everyone watching, um, if you've got any questions, do pop them in the Q and a box and I'll come to them in just a sec. Um, but let me ask you just before I do about, uh, about the score, I mean, you've got an amazing score from Bryce Desner from, from the national, um, yeah. what's, what sort of creative brief did you give to him? And were you, were you cutting to attempt score? And then he sort of came in and, uh, sort of added his over the top or what was that process like yeah. during the edit? You know, you have to use a temp score because you, you in using temp score, you're finding the tone of the film. And that's what's tr- always tricky for a composer is you get temp love and you fall in love with temp score. You've, you've, you've tried a zillion things and you finally found temp score that's like, OK, we've landed on what our tone is. But wait, we, we don't own any of this. And also, we're not going to keep a Shawshank cue in the movie. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the most the most the most. Uh, the most used temp score in the history of filmmaking, uh, uh, Um, um, so yeah, we used a lot of just temp stuff. Um, a lot of temp, um, piano and, and other things like that. And then Bryce, you know, he comes in and again, we got it. We didn't have money. I don't, I daydreamed that I'd have an orchestra. It was a blessing in disguise actually. Cause I, I, I had daydreamed I had an, or- I would have an orchestral score. Um, I knew that, I knew that once budget became, a, you know, a problem and there was no way we were going to be able to afford, uh, recording an orchestra, but I, I was kind of, uh, attached to that idea, but I, I was a blessing in disguise that we couldn't because what Bryce came in with, with was so simple. An orchestral score would have, would have pushed the, the emotion too much. And, um, and, um, and so Bryce, and Dan uh, helped me pull back, you know? I mean, the movie is uh, very emotional and um, and heartbreaking. It didn't need a score that was pushing. And that's something I, I always need help with. I happen to love, you know, emotional, sentimental scores. So I need people like Dan and, and Bryce to save me from myself. So they really helped me um, leave a lot of moments naked that would have had um, score on them. And also, uh, um, um, lean towards simplifying the moments so that so that they were there, but they weren't pushing. And Bryce is just brilliant at that. He's a brilliant musician and and um, and patient and patient with me because the score is is I think every every director watching knows it's so hard because you've by the time you're actually listening to their cues, you're so nervous 
that you're going to fuck up the scene by changing the cue because you've gotten so attached to seeing it with that temp cue. So um, it really takes a lot of patience. I, I, I respect the composers because they they come in and they and they're like, look, I'm not I'm not going to write that cue. That's not my music. I, I'm going to I'm going to aim as hard as I can to give you the feeling that you're getting. But I'm but I have to I have to make it my own. Mm-hmm. Um, OK, some questions. Um, Paul wants to know what your budget was. Um, I think it was um, around $10 million ish. And we had um, obviously we we're shooting at the at the height of COVID. So a, a chunk of that money ended up going to COVID. And what about question from Georgina? What about the um, locations? I mean, you shot in your hometown, and so you will have known a lot of these a lot of these locations. But talk us through finding them. Well, I love, I like, you know, it's the for me, it's the ultimate. Right, what you know, I, I just I like Jersey. I like Jersey as a character. I, New Jersey, the town I grew up in was, you know, forty five minutes outside of Manhattan. I find that just it's it's just a really interesting setting. Um, uh, going up in the suburbs, but but having you know one of the biggest cities in the world, you know, so close by train. By train, it's twenty five minutes. Um, so I just think that you know, and it, you know, when I'm when you're writing something about a high school principal's office, you're picturing your high school's principal office, you know. So when you're writing something that where someone's sitting on a bench at a at a pond with ducks, you're thinking about the one from your childhood, right? So I just thought, well, I'm going to put it all those locations. That is the duck pond I used to go to as a child with a little remote control boat with my mom and feed the ducks. That was the principal's office uh, where Morgan is. Uh, um, uh, that was the, that that soccer field where where the where uh, Celeste plays soccer is where I took gym class uh, every every day at high school. So those that's my town. Those are. Um, you know, the, I, I was just writing what I what I knew. The train station where where, where Florence's character meets Celeste's character. Um, that was the train station where I would take to auditions when I was a young teenager. I would go into the city to audition for parts as an actor, and that was that's where I would wait exactly where they are. So I have a lot of um, sentimental atta- attachment to it, and um, and also it goes without saying that you know within just from a production point of view. Uh, there's a zone, uh, you know, a a a, um, a radius from, I believe it's Columbus Circle in Manhattan, where you're allowed to have a crew uh, commute, um, and and this and the town falls within that radius. Um. So another question. Um. What obviously this is your fourth film as a director now. What are some things that you have learnt? over the last four films that mean that, you know, perhaps you've done things differently on this project than you did back on Garden State. Are there things over that period that now you feel like you've really sort of, perhaps you've made your mistakes and you've learned from them? I think you learn every, every time you learn a lot, I think. Um, And I learn a lot from even directing television. I directed Ted Lasso and Shrinking and shows like that. I learn. I I continue to learn so much, um, uh, every time I do it, every time I do it, I learn something. But I think the biggest thing in terms of from Garden State to, to now, uh, it's 20 years um, of doing this, um, is is really not trying to solve every problem, allowing my team to help me. I think in Garden State, I just I, 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 just, I, I thought I had to solve every single problem. I couldn't delegate. And, and I think when you surround yourself with really 
smart, talented people, uh, a director has to, you know, to make sure we're raising every question and concern, but also allowing other people to solve problems for me. Um, and, and not trying to get into the weeds of like, how are we going to do that? Literally, you know, being better at saying, I entrust you to tell me to figure out how we're going to do that. Not to say you don't stay on it. You go, how's it going? And you guys have options, how we're going to do that. But you, but taking it off your, taking off my plate a bit to be like, I'm, I'm entrusting someone else to figure out that conundrum. And also just overall, I'm not trying to have the right answer all the time. You know, whether it's a script note or whether it's a cinematography, a shot, um, you know, if Marrow moves, the, he's Marrow Fiore. You know, if he goes, I saw your, 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 where you want to put the camera, but I think it's way better here. Having the ability to go, yeah, you're right. That's, that's better. And obviously the difference between, I mean, there is a huge difference between working on a project like this that you have originated and written and you're producing and you're directing and going in and being essentially a director for hire on something like Ted Lasso. Um, how do you approach a show like that or a, a project like that where you are fitting into someone else's sort of pre-established vision? That's a good question. The luxury on Lasso was that I directed episode two so of the whole thing so it wasn't really fully established yet when i was prepping they were still painting sets um you know for the first time so that was a really fun luxury and like in episode in the pilot of lasso there's no there's nothing on the pitch at all um so i was and i'm not a sports guy and i was tasked with like how are we going to shoot on the pitch when the greensman wouldn't allow any gear on the pitch it was there and i was like wait what and they're like, no, no, you can't, you know, they're so understandably precious about the pitch. So I was, so uh, me and the DP and the key grip figured out how we were, how Lasso was going to shoot action on, on a pitch where you couldn't bring gear on. Um, and obviously, you know, a steady cam operator can't run fast enough, you know, and, and you know, I was thinking we were going to have electric carts and stuff, but anyway, so that was really fun because that show I was able to come in early enough that we were, I was able to, you know, but when you're directing episode two, you're still figuring out. I think the pilot of, of Lasso showed how funny it was going to be. And I was lucky enough to have the episode that was like, oh, and also we're going to break your fucking heart. Um, so that was really fun to do that. Um, you know, shrinking, same thing, you know, again, you're coming into someone, you know, the pilot director has set the look, but, you know, my episode of shrinking was one where, was sort of a pivotal moment in the season where where Jason's character finally realizes he's he's um he has to step up and be a parent and 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 punish his daughter um so you're still you're still you're operating within the 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 lexicon the the look of the show but you still have a chance especially early on to be like yeah but what if the show could do this is this and i think even in my edit of you know when i was cutting my episode of shrinking i hadn't seen all the other episodes uh, i had directed episode eight i'd only seen the pilot uh, because they weren't even finished they weren't locked yet so it's a funny way to direct actually because you're i had read them but i didn't seen them so you know I, I hadn't seen two through seven i had read them so I, in my edit i'm still pitching sort of looks for the show because none of it's locked you know can i don't know what your tone for the show is going to be if you have a com phone conversation can you do split screen is that in the lexicon of the show i put it in my cut to be like 
try this. It kind of looks cool. Jason and Harrison bantering back and forth, you know, ultimately, for example, they didn't use that, but other things you go, you're still able before the thing come out, you're still able to go, Hey, you guys aren't locked yet. Do you want to do phone calls like this? Do you want to do, you know, does this epic crane move work in your show? You know, <laughs> you're still able to sort of pitch ideas. Mm. Probably um, doesn't quite starting season two when everything's definitely locked, but that's the one of the fun things about getting your foot in the door in season one, where you can kind of sort of still help go, Hey, is this in the, in the language of your show? Mm. And just, time for one final question um so the question is about um uh you know perhaps if you are doing a co-production and you're going in and you're working with hod's that aren't necessarily people that you have hired personally how do you build that relationship with with people quite quickly or collaborators that aren't necessarily sort of speaking your creative language that's hard i've had that experience where you you just not the person's a bad person or, or, or not skilled at what they do, but the communication's a bit different than you're used to, or that you would have personally hired. Um, you just kind of figure it out and figure it out fast. I think obviously being, making it clear that you're the leader, um, is important being like, I, I hear you and I respect you and you're clearly gifted and talented, but I'm, I, I, I'm going to, I, I choose this. You might choose ABC. I'm going to choose XYZ. Um, I think that's just clear. And also just really coming in with a clear program, uh, especially with half hour television. It's just not achievable unless you have a clear goal. Uh, how are you going to block it? How where are you going to put the camera? I, I draw overheads for every, every scene. So this is one way that I combat that is that I, I don't storyboard for a scene of television. Um, I'll come in with an overhead of the set. Um, all the blocking of where I think people are going to go. Obviously that might change, but a rough plan, if the actors agree to my blocking, this is where they're going to go. And then in the shoot, in order to shoot that, what are the, what are the counter positions I need? And I, and I, and so I'll show up each day for the first AD and the DP and hand them the overhead sketch of what that scene is going to look like. That's the only way I know how to shoot an episode of television in six days. Um, if you're moving at that pace. Now, of course, it, it it changes when the blocking tweaks or or the DP goes, I, I see shot six is cool, but do you want to try it over here? And you go, oh, yeah, let's add that. And obviously it's all malleable. But um, I think that's a way to really go to come in and go, um, I'm open to all suggestions, but here's my plan for how we're going to shoot this scene. Um, otherwise, you're just never going to make your days. And one of the reasons you get rehired as a TV director is making your days. It doesn't matter how good you are if you're not making your days you're not going to be asked back i'm afraid that's all we've got time for um thank you everyone for your brilliant questions and zach this was really really terrific thank you so much for being so generous and so detailed in your responses and just to say i love the film i think it's thank it's you. fantastic I, it made me weep thank you so much I and mean, everyone who tuned in um and if and if you happen to have not seen the film uh, please check it out because um I think you'll like it. This podcast was recorded at a Directors UK member event. You can hear plenty more directors in conversation by subscribing on the usual streaming platforms. Follow us on social media and find out more about us at directors.uk.com. <laughs>